Due to the graphic nature of the cases covered on Criminal Intent, listener discretion is advised. The city of Austin during the mid-1800s was growing fast. Austin quickly became a hub for jobs, especially for construction workers, with the city expanding. The new Capitol building under construction was one of the main projects underway. Completed in 1887, the state Capitol building would be dubbed the seventh largest building in the world. But with more people moving into Austin, the rise in crime was inevitable. And by May 1885, disturbances and attacks occurred nightly. It was in this environment where someone would commit a series of gruesome killings on mostly African-American domestic servants. However, the attacker would not just take black women as his victims. Some of the victim's husbands and boyfriends were also brutally attacked. The youngest victim was an 11-year-old girl, and at least two victims were white women. With the public outrage growing after each incident and with the crimes occurring near a major election, the pressure was on the police to find who was behind the murders. Three years before Jack the Ripper stalked the moonlit streets of Whitechapel, London, and six years before the notorious H.H. Holmes allegedly killed his first two victims, had Austin witnessed the lurid work of one of America's first serial killers? On this episode of Criminal Intent, we will take a look at five of the seven fatalities that are included in a series of murders known to history as the Servant Girl Murders. Welcome to Criminal Intent, the podcast where we dissect crime one episode at a time. I'm your host, Deandra Canoli. This podcast is available to you on all major streaming platforms. You can find episodes on the official website at www.criminalintentpod.com. And if you would like updates on upcoming episodes, please feel free to follow the show on Twitter at CrimIntentPod, that's C-R-I-M, IntentPod, or follow on Instagram at CriminalIntentPod. And now, on with the show. During the early hours of December 31, 1884, the residents of the W.K. Hall property on 901 West Pecan Street were sleeping peacefully, but soon that peace would be disturbed. Thomas Chalmers, the brother of Mrs. W.K. Hall, awakened from his sleep after hearing stirring in his bedroom. Walter Spencer, the significant other of the hall's 25-year-old cook, Molly Smith, made his way towards Thomas, begging for help. Thomas lit a lamp and saw Walter standing there with blood running down from his head. Walter had sustained five gashes in total, the most serious of them being a cut under his eye that fractured his orbital bone. Walter informed Tom that Molly was missing, but he couldn't recall what exactly happened 
or who attacked them. Thomas instructed Walter to go to the doctor to get his wounds treated. He went to a house of a fellow black man to borrow a coat and then went to Dr. Ralph Steiner, who tended to his wounds. According to an article in the Austin American Statesman newspaper, Walter later went to Dr. Bart, the city physician, who found a part of his orbital bone pressed deep into the cavity against his eyeball. Dr. Bart would then pull it forward into his proper place. Around 9 o'clock that morning, the whereabouts of Molly would be discovered. A servant of a neighbor saw a curious object in the hall's backyard. Upon realizing what he was seeing, he hurried to report his findings. Several people came out to find a macabre scene tucked away behind a small outhouse. Molly Smith lay nearly nude with a large head wound. Unfortunately, Molly was deceased by the time she was found. The room where she and Walter resided, a room in the back of the house behind the kitchen, was a mere 50 steps away from where her body was found. There was a trail of drag marks from the bedroom to the spot where Molly was discovered. It was clear to the police that the blows sustained by Walter and Molly were done within the room. The bedroom was in complete disarray. Shards from a broken mirror littered the floor. Furniture was overturned. Bloody finger marks were present all over the room. The bed sheet and the pillows were stained with blood. The crime scene painted a picture of a struggle for life taking place. Finally, by the foot of the bed, the blood-stained murder weapon, an axe, was discovered. The scene was a gruesome mess that left nothing but questions. Who could have done such a despicable act, and why? Molly presumably had no enemies. She had recently started working for the halls a month prior to her death. Before then, she had migrated between Waco, Texas, and Austin, taking up cooking positions with different families, something that was not uncommon for servants to do. Walter Spencer got to know her during her time in Waco, Texas. While they were not married, they lived together as common-law spouses. Molly was survived by a 10-year-old son named George, who didn't live with her at the time. Things were reportedly good between Molly and Walter. At first, he was looked at as a person of interest, but there was nothing to indicate that they would have fought with each other. There were no reported arguments about her child or their relationship at all, and he was ruled out as a suspect. The other theory was that her ex-boyfriend, William Brooks, a young African-American man who worked as a bartender at a saloon on East Pecan Street, may have been the culprit. William got to know Molly while she was in Waco, Texas. It was speculated that he was jealous of Molly and Walter's relationship, and perhaps tried to murder the both of them. William was arrested before noon on December 31st. He would eventually be released due to the lack of evidence linking him to the crime. Upon his release, Brooke made a statement to the press saying, quote, I know both a woman named Molly Smith and Walter Spencer. I like them both and never had any falling out with either. I knew her in Waco and we had nothing to do with each other here in Austin. I am innocent of the murder, 
and can prove by any number of witnesses that I was at a ball on Sand Hill near the Tolleston Institute until four o'clock in the morning and was the prompter. They have gotten a hold of the wrong man for sure, end quote. However, Walter told a reporter that he and William Brooks did have a quarrel three months earlier. William wanted to fight Walter, but Walter made it clear that he was not stating that he thought William was the one who attacked them. Quote, I do not know who did it, but anybody could have gotten into the room easily through the door connecting it with the kitchen, Walter said. It was mentioned in a news article that a reporter visited the house where William Brooks said he went after the ball. The reporter talked to the woman who let him in the house. She reportedly said that she had let William in sometime between 2 and 3 o'clock a.m. and not after 4 o'clock a.m. as he had said. Others at the ball stated that William stayed during the whole event and didn't leave until around 4 a.m. The article states that she may have been mistaken about the time he came into the house, since a number of people attested to seeing him at the ball. The next day, Walter Spencer would tell the press what he remembered before the attack happened. He recalled some time between 9 and 10 o'clock on December 30th that he went to Molly's room, where she complained about being sick. She also told him to wake her up early the next morning. He could not remember more about the night until after he was injured. He went to Dr. Steiner's and then came back to the hall's property. He then went back into town, but he could feel himself getting weaker and fell several times on his walk to his brother's restaurant. It was about six o'clock in the morning when he arrived and his brother assisted him back home. Even though Walter Spencer was quite severely harmed in the attack, Detectives brought evidence against him for the murder of his girlfriend. He was indicted by the grand jury on December 10, 1885, but was acquitted of all the charges. The murder of Molly Smith would only be the beginning of a series of murders that would bring terror to the citizens of Austin, Texas. However, the next murder didn't happen immediately afterwards. Five months would pass before the killer would strike again. May 6, 1885, 28-year-old Eliza Shelley and her three children were asleep in their room at 302 East Cypress Street. Eliza was a cook for the family of former state legislator Dr. Lucien Johnson, who she had started to work for earlier that year. She and her three children resided in the room on the Johnson's property. Her husband was incarcerated and she was waiting for the day when he would return home. During the night, someone broke into Eliza's room and split her head nearly in two. Her children woke up to find their mother dead on the floor. Dr. Lucian Johnson arrived home from the market the next morning when his wife, shaken from the dreadful news, approached him to inform him that Eliza was murdered. Mrs. Johnson recounted to her husband that she had heard screams coming from Eliza's room earlier that morning. She summoned her niece to check on Eliza to see if she was all right. 
Her niece hurried back to tell Mrs. Johnson what she had seen. Mrs. Johnson's niece had found Eliza on the floor of her room. She was wrapped in her bedsheet. A gaping wound was found over her right eye. Another stab wound was found right between her eyes. And the last wound was a round, deep hole just above her ears. Her bed was covered in blood, and the room was in complete disarray. Eliza's eight-year-old son was the witness to her murder. He could not remember much of what happened, but he did recall a man having a white rag over his face. The man asked the boy where his mother kept her money. The boy told the man that he didn't know where she kept her money stash. The attacker then proceeded to tell him to cover his head and that if he didn't, he would kill him. And so the boy did as he was told. Police initially arrested a young man named Andrew Williams because he was barefoot and was near the crime scene, but they had nothing else to link him to the murder and let him go. A man by the name of Ike Plummer, described in the Democrat and Chronicle newspaper as, quote, a half-witted Negro, end quote, was arrested for the murder. A neighbor told police that he had overheard Ike ask Eliza for money the day before she was killed. Eliza replied that all of the money that she had was for her children. Ike allegedly said that he would see her again. One of Ike's neighbors told the authorities that on the night of the murder, he awoke to the sound of Ike coming home about 1 a.m. According to an article in the Austin American Statesman, there was nothing positive against him, though many thought he was guilty. Nearly three weeks later, on May 23rd, the killer was striked yet again, this time at 302 East Linden Street, on the property of Sophia Whitman. Irene Cross was a 33-year-old widow and mother of one, a son named Washington. She was also the guardian of her nephew, Douglas. That night, as she often did, she left the door unlocked for her son, who tended to stay out late. During the night, her attacker came in and woke her. She let out a cry and the killer proceeded to cut a deep gash on her arm, a cut so deep that her arm was nearly cut in two, severing the brachial artery. Then he proceeded to leave a laceration on her head just above her right eye as if he was attempting to scalp her. She managed to muster up the last of her strength to scream for help outside of the Whitman house, but she succumbed to her injuries between 5 and 6 o'clock that morning. Her son was out of the house that night, but her nephew Douglas was there to witness the grisly attack. He would be one of the few people who could describe the murderer, to which he said that he was, quote, a big, chunky Negro man, barefoot with his pants rolled up. He also told authorities that he was wearing a brown hat, a well-worn coat, and was carrying a pocket knife. Police worked to apprehend suspects possibly linked to the murder, but there was little evidence to conclusively link any of the detainees to the crime. The killer went silent for a few weeks, but he was by no means done yet. The story of the Servant Girl Murders will be back after this short commercial break. Hi, podcast listeners. 
Perhaps some of you out there have been inspired to put together a podcast of your own, but you probably have a lot of questions about how to get your podcast off the ground. How do you get your episodes on streaming platforms? How do you manage your RSS feed? What is an RSS feed? Well, Buzzsprout has got your back. Buzzsprout is a service that I use to upload and disseminate criminal intent to many podcast streaming platforms. And all I do is upload my episode to Buzzsprout to host it. Buzzsprout is one of the easiest ways to launch, promote, and monetize your podcast. And so far, over 100,000 podcasters have found their services to be incredibly helpful with launching and maintaining their podcasts. Need a podcast website to host your episodes? No problem. Buzzsprout has got you. Want audio players you can drop into other websites easily? Buzzsprout has got you again. Want amazing tips and tricks about improving your podcast? Done, done, and done. Buzzsprout is here for you with not only fantastic features, but they also have a blog, a weekly podcast, and a YouTube channel with weekly content providing incredibly useful information that can help you build and improve your podcast. If you're ready to start creating your own podcast and get a $20 Amazon gift card, click the link in the show notes. By clicking the link, Buzzsprout will know that Criminal Intent sent you. Buzzsprout, the easiest way to start a podcast. And now on with the show. On August 30th, 1885, Rebecca Ramey and her 11-year-old daughter, Mary, were sleeping in their room at 300 East Cedar Street. The bedroom was in the kitchen of the Valentine O. Weeds residence. Rebecca suddenly awoke to a painful blow of a sandbag landing on her face. The impact of the sandbag fractured her skull. She also received a wound to the left side of her head from a sharp object. Valentine Weed said that around 5 o'clock, he heard an unnatural sound that was similar to a dog howling, which woke him up. He got up from the bed and headed to the kitchen where he saw Rebecca. She told him that she was sick. Her daughter Mary, however, was not in the kitchen. The murderer drug Mary out of the bed and took her to a nearby wash house where he raped the young girl. He then proceeded to drive an iron pin into both of her ears, which penetrated her brain. Police with hound dogs attempted to track down the killer by picking up his scent. According to an article in the Boston Globe in December of 1885, the killer was traced to a hackney coach, a kind of a horse-drawn taxi cab. The police tracked him down to an alley near the premises of the weed property. The tracking hounds led the officer to a hackney coach stable where they found a man named Tom Allen. They arrested him, but on September 1st, a coroner's jury returned a verdict that the murder was done by an unknown assailant. All suspects who were arrested had to be released from police custody. After this series of deaths, the citizens of Austin felt moved to act. There was a call to the public to donate money to cover the cost of the private detectives, services, and the additional police. 
the effort raised several thousand dollars for the additional services. The black citizens of Austin rallied together to come up with a committee to represent their voices in the city government. They asked for an award to be set up so that anyone who had information that could lead to the arrest of the perpetrator would have incentive to do so. They also agreed that they would work together to try their best to stop crime that was affecting their people. As for Rebecca Ramey, life was never the same after the attack. She had already lost her husband before Mary was born, and now she had to suffer with the memory of being brutally assaulted and the death of her daughter. She went on to live with her oldest daughter, Minnie, who she remained with until the time of her death in 1909. Nearly a month later, on the night of September 28, 1885, another gruesome killing took place within a small servant's cabin on 2408 Guadalupe Street. This time, the attack would be one of the bloodiest yet. William B. Dunham was asleep in his bedroom when he awoke to a strange sound. It seemed to come from the servant's cabin in his backyard where Orange and Gracie Vance lived. The noise seemed like an all-too-familiar one, like someone being slapped across the face over and over again. Unfortunately, this was the reality for Gracie. William arose from his bed to check on Orange and Gracie, but suddenly the sound stopped. After some time of silence, he went back to bed. Later on, at around 1 a.m., William was awakened again to a very startling sound like someone had jumped out of one of the cabin's windows, which was followed by a woman's scream. William grabbed his gun and ran to the front door where he saw one of the guests of Orange and Gracie, Lucinda Body, fight with the man outside of the front gate. The man struck her. Lucinda, upon seeing William, ran to him and grabbed him, which prevented William from shooting at the assailant. William recalled Lucinda saying to him, my God, Mr. Dunham, we're all dead. William attempted to calm Lucinda down and search her body to see if there were any wounds. Though he didn't find any at the moment, it would later be found that she was hurt quite badly from the attack. It was stated in the Austin American Statesman for the October 1st, 1885 article that her skull was crushed into the brain and that she was in critical condition. Henry H. Duff, William's neighbor was awakened by the commotion and called the police. He came over to William's house to see what was the matter. After William filled Henry in on the details, they found the lantern and went into the cabin to inspect it. The men discovered Orange lying face down on the floor between the bed and a window. He was unconscious but still breathing. Patsy Gibson, the other house guest, was found on the floor. She was awake, but her head was covered with blood. They asked Patsy what happened, but she struggled to remember. They turned over the bed covers and found the bloody axe used in the attack. Gracie Vance was nowhere to be found in the cabin. William and Henry spotted blood smeared across the floor leading to a window. The two men went outside and saw more blood smeared on the cabin wall under the window and then a trail of blood running across the yard and over the fence. 
Sergeant Cheneville and Officer Connor soon joined in on the search for Gracie. Another neighbor, Mrs. W.H. Hotchkiss, called out to the men from her second-story window, letting them know that someone was behind her stable. Henry Duff and Officer Connor hopped over the fence and tried to shoot the fleeing person, but missed. The suspect slipped away into the darkness of the night. It was then when Gracie was discovered behind the stable. William Dunham testified that they found Gracie lying face up. Her head was bloodied, and she was unconscious but breathing. A bloodied brick was found close by her. A watch chain was wrapped around one of her arms with a small silver open-faced pocket watch on the end of it. Gracie was soon died from her injuries, as did Orange. Though seriously injured, Patsy and Lucinda would survive. Patsy and Lucinda gave their testimony to what they could remember. Lucinda gave her account on the night of the murders. She named Doc Woods, an ex-boyfriend of Gracie Vance, as the person she saw in the cabin the night of the attack. According to her testimony, she was suffering from a bout of dengue fever and woke up thirsty for water. She called Patsy's name, but there was no response. Lucinda got up and turned on the light when she saw Doc Woods standing at the window on the outside of the cabin. Put out that light, goddamn you, or I'll kill you, he shouted. She threw the light down on the floor and ran out the house. But before she made her way out, she happened to catch a glimpse of Patsy and Orange, who she recalled as being bloody. Lucinda said that she saw Doc Woods clearly and could not have been mistaken. Patsy had also said that she'd seen Doc around the cabin a few nights before the murder. She and Gracie were in the cabin while Orange was out, and they noticed someone was outside of one of the windows. Gracie instructed Patsy to get the pistol, and she went to see who it was. The man identified himself as Doc Woods and told Gracie that he wanted to come in to stay the night. Gracie told Doc that she had too many people in the house and that he could not come in. He ran off after that. Patsy couldn't remember much of what happened that night. Patsy speculated that chloroform was possibly used in the attacks. While it may seem a bit dubious, the use of chloroform in some crimes during the 19th century was not unheard of. R.J. Galloway, the author of The Servant Girl Murders, Austin, Texas, 1885, wrote a blog post on his website of the same name. He took a look at the use of chloroform in crimes reported. He came across a number of accounts where it was used to disable victims. However, sometimes it didn't work. The right amount had to be used to keep someone knocked out. If too little was used, the victim would regain consciousness rather quickly. William Dunham had also mentioned in his testimony that he had seen Doc come to the cabin and he had spoken to Doc about coming to the house so often. He identified him at the jail where Doc was being detained. As with all the other cases, the authorities arrested several men that they felt initially could have been associated with the attack. Beverly Overton arrived at the police station to claim a horse that was found near the scene of the murder. The man claimed that his stepson had ridden the horse into town to run errands. During the trip, the horse was stolen. The police suspected that the horse belonged to the attacker 
and so they arrested Beverly. But there was no evidence to tie him to the murders, and Beverly was released from custody. Another man named Oliver Townsend was also pinned to the murders for a short time after a man named John Trigg said that he overheard Oliver and another man talking. He allegedly mentioned that he was going to kill Gracie Vance. Johnson said that he followed Oliver and saw him and another man enter the cabin. Oliver had already been arrested that morning for the burglary of Dr. Wade Morris. He had a rap sheet, so it was easy to assume that perhaps that he could have done the murders. But it was later revealed that Johnson Triggs made up the story and Oliver Townsend was dropped from the list of suspects. Doc Woods was apprehended after being found on the farm where he worked. He was working in a field when Marshall Lee and Sheriff Hornsby came out to investigate. They found a bloody shirt that belonged to him. Doc denied being involved with the murders and the attempted murders, but said that the bloody shirt did not have anyone's blood on it but his own. He claimed that he had a venereal disease that caused him to bleed, and he was using the shirt to catch the blood. The shirt and the testimonies were enough for law enforcement to arrest him. Before it was revealed that Jonathan Triggs had made false testimony, police started to suspect that Doc Woods and Oliver Townsend committed the attacks together. But some didn't think that Doc Woods was involved at all. In the San Antonio Express article on the case, it was stated that Woods was not necessarily guilty, but the reasoning was downright racist, stating, quote, Anyone familiar with the character of such sentiments by Negroes will not take much stock in them, as Negroes are proverbial for saying and doing things merely to gratify grudges of their own or to further grudges of their friends against other parties, end quote. It is obvious that this is not something that only black people do nor would it be a good reason for someone who survived a violent attack and saw the horrific state of their friends to lie and pin it on someone else who wasn't around in the cabin. This would also mean that William Dunham, the property owner and a white man, possibly lied about Doc Woods being around his property often in order to help the quote-unquote Negro's story. The Pinkerton detectives who were investigating the murder of Mary Ramsey also didn't think Doc was the culprit. Instead, they had their eyes on other suspects. However, the reason for their dismissal of Doc Woods being a suspect was not reported. There was a more legitimate reason to suspect that Doc Woods may not have been the correct suspect. Both Lucinda and Patsy sustained significant head injuries, and their memories could have been affected by the trauma. A few days later, while Lucinda was in the hospital, Doc Woods was brought in before her again for a second identification. This time she couldn't recognize him. It's possible that her memories were correct on the night of the attack and her brain injury caused her to lose parts of her memory later on. But what seemed to be an ironclad testimony was now a questionable one. Dr. Burt, one of the city's physicians, also testified that the bloody shirt Doc had in his possession was due to a certain, quote, chronic illness, end quote. And finally, the silver watch and chain that was wrapped around Gracie's arm 
was a stolen watch. R.J. Galloway, the author, found that the watch belonged to a Swedish girl who worked in a different neighborhood. Woods had no connection to the Swedish girl. Ultimately, the grand jury failed to indict any of the suspects. And now a quick break before we wrap up the episode. Hi, podcast listeners. I know some of you are content creators like me. And if you are, you probably struggle to find royalty-free music or royalty-free sound effects to enhance the mood of your content. For me, the number one place to go for high-quality, royalty-free music is Epidemic Sound. They have been my go-to source for music for this podcast and other projects for years. For only $15 a month, you have access to over 35,000 professionally made music tracks and over 90,000 sound effects that you can use for your projects. The library is always growing, so you will find new and interesting pieces that will fit the mood of your project. If you want to give Epidemic Sound a try, click the link in the show notes. By using the link, it will let Epidemic Sound know that Criminal Intent sent you there. Epidemic Sound, soundtracking the world. Two months would pass before the final climactic events took place on Christmas Eve, 1885. Two women would die, drugged from their bedrooms into their backyards within hours of each other. The public wanted justice. The politicians, feeling the pressure from the Austin citizens, wanted to make an arrest. And as a result, their husbands were arrested. In part two, we will go over the details of the final two murders and discuss who could have done the killings on the next episode of Criminal Intent, The Servant Girl Murders. This concludes the episode of Criminal Intent. Please follow us on social media on Instagram at Criminal Intent Pod and on Twitter at Crim Intent Pod. That's C R I M Intent Pod. You can find all episodes on our website at www.criminalintentpod.com or on most podcast streaming services. All sources and podcast information are included in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and I will see you next time.